what conditions are stipulations. It's caffeine season. That's why I have my pumpkin beer. I'm caffeine this pumpkin beer. Oh, that sounds so dark, though. Caffeine season, like you're gonna hitch someone to drag them behind your wagon. Mm hmm. I think that's the point. Is that another point of caffeine season? It's like you're handcuffed to somebody. That that is depressing. I thought it was much more fun than that. Maybe the fuzzy handcuffs, but other than that, it's. I thought you were like gonna do a sideshow thing. That's what I thought caffeine season was. Maybe. I think that's what Sideshow Bob was in The Simpsons. He was just a really romantic guy. <laughs> All right, folks, this is Exceedingly Persuasive. I'm Brooke Rogers. I'm Mackenzie Brennan, and I'm cuffed. You're extremely cuffed. You're very married. Yeah, I'm pretty married. You're married with a capital M. Yeah. So yeah. one thing I want to clarify from last week when we were talking about hate speech, hate crimes, all that stuff, Brooke and I had been a little confused and not all this confusion will go away, but between the RAV case that said you can't criminalize things related to hate speech and Mitchell a year later that said that there's a distinction between hate-based motivation and hate-based thoughts. So it sounds like in RAV they severed the charge as it related to just the hate crime, like a crime Mm. inspired by whatever, And they let stand the conviction on the actual property burning. In Mitchell, it was the same statute. It was one statute that the crime and the bias motivation were linked under one charge. So, again, it's very much splitting hairs in an almost literal sense because RAV was just severing one charge. And the state statute in Mitchell happened to have both of those elements in the same thing. So... Not a great explanation, but uh, at least there is a de jure distinction, if not a de facto one. So there's that. We wanted to yammer a little bit about opioids this week. There have been a couple settlements, and there was a verdict against uh, Johnson & Johnson that was appealed, and it'll probably end up with Johnson & Johnson paying out millions upon millions of dollars, even after the appeal. But it'll also mean that a lot of these lawsuits are sparked in other states and in federal contexts because, A, so many have ended in settlements. A lot of the companies, Mm. the drug companies, have settled. And then the one that elected to go to trial, Johnson & Johnson, uh, didn't do so well. So this could be a new flood. And we wanted to talk a little bit about opioids. Um, Brooke and I got dinner with my mom and talked about it. A very nice lady. She bore me good. My mom, she was a nurse practitioner. She got her doctorate after my dad died when she was in her 50s. She's a badass woman. She was in one of those families where all the men were doctors and all the women were nurses. Yeah. So kudos to her. She works for the United States Veterans Affairs Hospital now in general and vascular surgery and boob cancer and lots of fun stuff. So she is a prescriber of opioids sometimes. And it's always been interesting for me on the policy side to hear from her as a prescriber and there's no simple answer for any of these issues right she kind of has some inside knowledge about how the process works um i wanted to clarify that this actually 
Purdue has been in hot water for a long time. Purdue Pharma mm-hmm. is uh, held responsible, sort of in a cultural sense, for at least the start of the opioid epidemic and stoking it afterward as well. They definitely facilitated sure. it. So uh, Purdue produced OxyContin, okay. which passed the FDA in 1995. Okay. Uh, at the oh, time... Wow, that's, that's later than I would have thought, but dang. Yeah. At the time... The FDA was actually pretty wary about new painkillers because they were becoming more aware of their addictive properties. Mm -hmm. So the way that Purdue got it passed at the FDA was to describe it as a slow-releasing painkiller. And they actually placed a lot of their claims that it was safe on the fact that it was slow-release. They said that it would be much harder to get addicted to than something that released quickly that may have more of a high because you think it builds up slowly and it it tapers down slowly that's the implication and i think probably some people could have reasonably believed that at the beginning at the very beginning at the beginning sure right <laughs> and the, what they didn't realize was that kids in the 90s kids and others would soon figure out that you could chew oxycontin or chop it up and snort it or put it in a, a spoon and use a needle to inject it kids and get this eat anything <laughs> kids you put a two-year-old in your oxycontin it'll Gosh, take it right darn up. it uh but they realized very quickly that uh they could use it to get almost the same high as heroin which is one of the reasons why it was called hillbilly heroin and also one of the reasons that it has that stereotype is because it is uh the majority of the opioid deaths in america happen in Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia. And that's near Appalachia. Yeah, Midwest, East heavy. They were actually... East Midwest. (laughs) East Midwest. But I wanted to frame the timeline in a grander sense, and this fits in well if you're talking about 95 being when one of the primary prescribed opioids, and this is actually a useful distinction to make, that opiates are actual substances made from opium poppies going way back to the source of heroin. And that also is a general term for mm. things that knock you out. You think of the aphorism like the opiate of the populace. It's just something that lulls you. And the opioids are the actual prescribed medications that are synthetic. It's a sin- synthetic It's synthetic, yeah. yeah, that it's not made from poppies. Um, but jumping off of where you left the timeline with, was it OxyContin? I always confuse contin and codone because you got oxycodone, oxycontin, and then hydrocodone. All these prescribed things, but all of them have virtually the same effect in different concentrations. So one thing my mom was telling us about that I had no idea was a thing, and ironically is kind of good when you think about how undertreated and undertrusted a lot of minority populations and women are when it comes to pain symptoms, and you still hear about that as a problem in healthcare. But I guess around the 90s, the it was either the FDA or the CDC, some you know nationwide health authority, mm-hmm. said that we are going to start treating pain as the fifth vital signs, like breathing, cardiac function. That now pain is something that has to be a threshold for healthcare providers to assess. You have to make sure that it's treated. This should be a priority on a baseline level to listen to and assess for every patient. So seems like what could go wrong? This this yeah. is a noble pursuit. Um, there are really very few drawbacks to the concept of it. But then when you look at when opioid prescriptions hit their peak, peak prescribing was 2010. And that also is useful when you think now prescribers are taking a lot of the policy brunt when prescribing has been going down since 2010. It's 
a combination of prescribers being afraid of and poorly trained weaning, they're more likely to just sever prescription, no more, or stop prescribing to new patients who might need it or might need to be tapered or might have real pain. So those people are left to turn to street substitutes, which are either less safe in general or cut with fentanyl and other dangerous substances that are a much higher concentration or criminalized or all the above. So that's kind of the form that the crisis is in now. And I think that in this frenzy to fix it and while we're also looking back, researching how we got here, we haven't really been working on solving it in the most effective way. It's worth keeping that in mind as we think about potential solutions. No, absolutely. And when we think about the the opioid crisis, you and I have both lived, most of our lives we've been living in the opioid crisis. If you think about it, my birth year actually was the year that Mm. OxyContin was passed, but they had been dealing with the problem of opioid addiction for a little bit longer than that. Um, OxyContin entering the marketplace spiked up by a lot because it was this extremely addictive and extremely effective. Accessible, dirt cheap, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's worth saying, it's weird because I feel like I'm playing an inverse role and it's an inverse conversation to that that happens around marijuana for medical purposes because no, fentanyl is actually prescribed as well. Even this dangerous poster child for, um, and very real dangerous substance that has been easier to make because it's synthetic and a lot cheaper and easier to access. A lot of it comes over from China, I guess. But fentanyl is actually prescribed in healthcare settings for, my mom talks about prescribing it to her pediatric patients who had cancer, to third degree burn victims. Typically the way that she was familiar with administering it is through a patch or a lozenge for kids, like Mm. a lollipop sort of format. But just like you're saying with the Oxycontin, people chew on patches. Yeah to get it more quickly and less localized. It, I, I do want to say that these things can be very effective and very, very necessary for people who need them. It's just that we've hit this perfect storm with the backwards-looking issues that came from prescribing because some of it was definitely abuse from the, the pharmaceutical industry, absolutely, um, and a lack of regulation on them and just everybody running wild. But then also this weird thing that pain was a new vital sign. So Mm -hmm. we're trying to treat every manifestation of pain. And look, here's this new cheap and effective way to do it. Uh, And also the fact that companies like Purdue Pharma were telling doctors that it was not addictive. And they were pushing them to prescribe it to more people, to prescribe it more often. They were saying this is a safe alternative to addictive drugs. And so actually today... News came out that Purdue is preparing for bankruptcy hmm. uh, because states and cities rejected the company's settlement for litigation. Dozens and dozens of lawsuits have been brought forward. Tens of billions of dollars are on the line. It's ironic that people not accepting their settlement amounts has made them file for bankruptcy because how would they have fulfilled the settlement then to begin with? Well, surprisingly, <laughs> actually in 2004, they were fined by the state of Florida for 2004, you said? This, this has been <laughs> going on for quite some time. In 2004, and actually, um, Got worse at the then. time, they were in danger. One of our sources here is the New York Times, The Daily Podcast. They did a deep dive into, I think it's called The Family That Benefited from the Opioid Crisis. It's about the Sackler family who owns Purdue Pharma. And they were talking about how, at the time, Purdue, Purdue Pharma was actually facing 
a lot of really huge criminal charges, felonies. Hmm. And they managed to plea down to misdemeanors and ended up paying a $600 million fine. And one thing the host said was $600 million might sound like a lot to you Hmm. and me, but to a giant pharmaceutical company, it is a drop in the bucket. Yeah, and I guess my thought is more when you compound it, just hearing you say cities and states all rejecting what I'm sure were exponentially larger sums and only more would come forward if those offers being rejected was what made them file for bankruptcy, it's just, mm-hmm. it's dizzying, and it makes me wonder how. Because they realized the scope of what they were yeah, facing like they had no the settlement didn't go through. Absolutely, point. and so now their lawyers are putting together documents for a Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing as a federal judge awaits settlement updates from patients, according to a report, so it's not a fact yet. Yeah, and again, I think this is going to open the floodgates. The interesting thing with this Oklahoma case was I guess it used a really outdated law about public nuisance and anybody who's funding something that led to health issues or injury to the public. And so usually this law had been used for real property related Mm -hmm. issues like an old abandoned building that was dangerous and maybe had asbestos or was going to collapse. And a lot of states have similar statutes that now I'm sure people will take on test runs with this sort of thing. And it was a big question mark whether the judge would hold this to apply to cases like pharmaceutical prescribing and these self-proclaimed middlemen who, oh, well, we were just the the producers and it was the doctors and the patients mm-hmm. and, and the government for approving it, the, kind of playing the non-agent, whether this would actually apply as a public nuisance. And so the judge in Oklahoma said that it did. It it was just kind of a weird roundabout way. I know we've talked in the past about laws that people use as ill-fitting solutions, square peg and round hole sort of things, and the line that you have to walk to actually get that to fit. Yeah, And so this is a big, it's a big deal that it fits. I think almost too much is placed on doctors when it is in many ways the pharmaceutical companies. I know that during the 90s they were sending salespeople, I think I said this before, but to to doctors to try to push the sale of the drugs. And Mm -hmm. at the time, so later on, Purdue executives denied that they knew that the, the substance was addictive. But documentation in that 2005 decision, the investigation that the Florida State did, it came out, it was leaked really recently, and they found out that Purdue was actually watching online forums that discussed street drugs. Oh my gosh. Talking about the fact that you could use OxyContin to get high in the late 90s. So when they were testifying before the government in the early 2000s, they were lying about the fact that they knew that this was addictive almost right after it being passed by the FDA. I I was listening to one of the Fresh Air interviews related to opioids, um, and this was a Washington Post reporter who had been part of a recent investigation and a suit by the Washington Post. They always have such a heroic role in getting, you know, freedom of information related. It was like a DEA report that had tracked opioids for a seven-year period. And something that came out in that report, because the Washington Post ended up winning that was a comparison to Doritos. Really? Yeah. The addictive nature was treated, they're like, oh, it's just like Doritos. Keep prescribing, we'll keep feeding. Something like that. I do think it's such a tricky role, especially when people... People want to ascribe blame in a case like this, and I think the pharmaceutical companies certainly deserve it, and that one is an easy one. But it's probably a lot less tangible to people than the faces that they see, which are, you know, the healthcare providers, doctors, um, NPs, pharmacists, things like that. 
I know my mom has a story on the flip side about trying to prescribe higher doses than are typically recommended to a woman who had severe back and spinal issues and so she had an incision that went around her spine and then she also had an issue an infection in her abdominal cavity on the front end so she essentially was like bisected Cut in half. Yeah. yeah and so she had she was being treated for these two separate surgeries and these two separate sources of very severe pain, so the dosage was compounded. And my mom prescribed a higher dosage because, yes, there are two injuries, and this is a significant issue that she has. And she got a letter from the licensing board that's like, no, no, we see you, and now we're going to watch you for a, a set amount of time. Right, we're going like, to watch like a hot one. now because yeah. we're worried about you over-prescribing. I think that does kneecap doctors in a way. Because yeah, to no good end. It's not like it's preventing people who are already have formed a habit, whether it be illicit or not. Another great story was Travis Reeder, who mm-hmm. he wrote a book called In Pain. He is a physician in his own right. He's a bioethicist for Johns Hopkins University and the head of their, their bioethics PhD program, something like that. But he also happened to have been in a motorcycle accident mm-hmm. that shattered his foot. Um, and so all these crazy stories about rebuilding the bones and how much pain oh. that you have to suppress in those in, in, or manage at, the, at that time and like muscle grafts from his upper thigh and then infections and things like that. And he actually spearheaded his own weaning because nobody was weaning him after a certain amount of time. And, and he, he was talking about he was going to doctors yeah. and doctors did not know how to wean him off. They hadn't been trained. They'd been trained to prescribe, but they hadn't been trained to wean him off in a safe way. And they were so afraid of the liability that they didn't want to touch it. And I think that he even used the word stigma. They were afraid yes. of the stigma of dealing with someone who had come to them and said, I think I'm addicted. I need to be weaned off of this. I can't go cold turkey. And they didn't want to touch that. Yeah. Which, so it's this kind of double-edged so sword. because sooner just cut him off. Like, absolutely. Stop. On one end, you have doctors like quote-unquote Dr. Feelgood there was a documentary that came out a few years ago about a doctor who was habitually over prescribing opioids which I think is less common now I think that's absolutely I think most doctors understand yeah understand the consequences of that but at the time a couple people ended up dying because they would overdose Mm -hmm. and other people said no one else would give me the opioids I needed I could not manage my pain he was the only one who would do it for me Mm -hmm. and so I think that it's this we're kind of hurting doctors who want to help people who are responsible doctors like your mom, well, try not to enable doctors who might abuse their power in that way. Yeah, and I think we're so, we're controlling so hard for things that really cannot and are not thriving. I think there was a knee-jerk legislative response that, as we've seen so many times in so many situations, like post 9-11, it's dangerous when policymakers react without consulting people in the industry, without researching the impact that this will have. And react to extremes. Yeah, so they essentially legislated around panic and preventing something that, you know, the ball was already in motion. And the problem, by the time we started talking about it within the last five years or so on a real national scale, was no longer the prescribing. It was more the alternatives that people were seeking out because they had been prescribed, Mm -hmm. over-prescribed maybe when they didn't need it. And now, they number one, they couldn't afford insurance or alternative treatment. Some good examples that Travis Reeder gave in this Fresh Air interview about his book were his insurance stopped paying for his physical therapy mm-hmm. after a year because he hadn't reached his deductible amount. That would have been an effective long-term way to handle pain, but it wasn't covered. And opioids are very cheap, 
So that's great. He also talked about feeling like he got an almost comparable physical response from intravenous acetaminophen. It was like ty- yeah, it was like yeah, really so liquid it was, Tylenol. Is what the yeah, term it was used. intravenous acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, but the intravenous form just because it's a different form is still on patent because it's mm-hmm. a new version so which it's means very it's expensive crazy expensive so nobody wanted to recommend it and I he think couldn't he said pay for it his nurse told him that well if we give you any more you might have a reaction to it so we can't give you any more later which is technically true it was something about liver function and yes Tylenol does hit your liver harder than other medications but so I don't I don't know that that was invalid for from my understanding, but there certainly was also a factor of this is exponentially more expensive than opioids that are off patent. And that kind of brings us to the fact that our healthcare system in America is equally, if not more, complicit in the rise of opioids because yeah. we value cheap alternatives over real ways for people to manage their pain. And I think it's also that we have a for-profit healthcare system that it's not. People are allowed to have business interest and business stake in what for many, many other people is a life or death matter and money really will make all the difference. I mean, people don't have access universally to physical therapy when they need it. They don't have insurance coverage for the things that they need. And this guy, I mean, we're talking about a physician who worked for Johns Hopkins even at the time. So this was not a destitute person and even he was in a position where the more affordable of the two options was the opioid option. And so imagine when you think about the areas that are most likely to have opioid overdoses. These are impoverished areas. These are areas where you may not have, you know, economic prospects. These are areas. Worst healthcare coverage, yeah. And yeah, worst healthcare coverage and also these are already sort of collapsing on themselves. And so if you, you know, if, if a person who had more resources wasn't able to find an alternative right so where does that leave everybody where does that leave people in kentucky and ohio and west virginia yeah and he was also somebody who had the wherewithal to seek out means to to recognize that he should be weaning himself on x dosage whatever dosage he had reached and to go shopping around essentially to find an option and then devise his own plan now luckily the cdc does now have a guide on weaning it turns out that it's a lot slower than he or anybody thought it would have to be it's something like four months and if you're experiencing x symptom you should cut it in half again it i think it also dovetails with the fact that we don't really i mean we don't prioritize science in general as a policy principle in this country we've certainly talked before about Mm -hmm. how our value for science really only connects to the priorities of people in power when it's related to defense maybe or some international superiority complex that it doesn't exist on its own it's not we have to go to the moon yeah john f kennedy is all about it you know, I don't know, like, do the, like, do the other things, I guess. He's not about doing the other things, Mackenzie. Yeah. When, John, when JFK was talking about doing the other things, did he mean healthcare? I'm not really sure. Can we enumerate those other things, please? So, in general, we don't love science and investing money in the things that... We don't believe that science is worth investing pay in. off! Oh my yeah. gosh, this is exactly how it pays off. But, it, you know, it's hard to connect A to C. But you think of things like marijuana, um, CBD certainly has hit a peak in spite of the federal government. Those are great, less dangerous mm-hmm. pain management options. In fact, my husband actually does ultrasound research to target nerves and areas in the brain and experiment with turning them on and off. Even there, it's a funding issue, it's a time issue. 
But these are things that would have been practical alternatives, but that's really not where priorities have ever been. And again, when it comes down to it, the healthcare system that we have will always value cheap, easy solutions, even if that results in a lot of, yeah, existing solutions, even when that may or may not cause crisis. Actually, the, uh, the number that stunned me today is that at this point, 130 people a day are overdosing on opioids. That's five people an hour. What form? I'm not actually sure. No, they didn't clarify. They actually have very little clarification because... Because I wonder, like, fentanyl versus... Well, I know that the the prescription overdoses are down. Absolutely, yeah. So I don't know where that's down from, but I imagine... what's interesting is that 2018, opioid overdoses were down for the first time since we acknowledge the opioid crisis. So that's including legal and illegal. Yes, just yeah, any okay. any death that had to do with that had with that, that was related substance. any overdose sure, sure. that was related to opioids. Uh-huh. It went down in 2018, which is great. But I was reading um I actually I listened to Vox's in the Wood podcast called it the t- the title of the podcast was Understanding the Opioid Epidemic and Armand Lopez who is a a reporter for Vox, he covers a lot of the opioid issues. He was talking and he wrote this piece on how uh, even though it's good that opioid overdoses have gone down last year, uh, th- there is a concern because, as we talked about, uh, fentanyl, the use of fentanyl is on the rise, and fentanyl-related deaths are on the rise. And fentanyl is a synthetic opioid, and it could potentially take the place of opioids. And it's more dangerous because it's more potent, and, and people... you can make it at home. Yes, you can make it at home, and, and fewer people are, are acquainted with it, so they may not, there may not be yeah. the same caution around using it as with other drugs right and one thing that my mom was showing me was they have this conversion chart that it's it's publicly accessible and it might be worth posting once we figure out our damn show notes we we got confused you guys i'm sorry it's we got little tiny brains it's hard um one thing that she was showing was the the conversion chart that they can use in clinical settings to figure out the equivalent dosage and fentanyl is a hundred times stronger than morphine so if you picture that you know if two units of this can kill you and it's cut in with heroin that's a really really narrow margin of error absolutely if somebody's if some non-professional is cutting it to use something cheaper than heroin but that happens to be a lot stronger and it's not just heroin it's party it's doing it you it's know party drugs like Co- like MDMA. cocaine and mdma if you are a college kid in a city and you think that doing cocaine is just i mean if the wolf of wall street did it you can too it might have fentanyl in it so please stop cool. doing that do you think do doing you think alcohol is cool <laughs> but i mean it also kind of segues into the effective ways to handle this what are some good solutions and how the trump administration has not been devising those so One step in the semi-right direction that their policy has taken, I think in light of the fact that this can no longer be ignored, nor can it be demonized, and honestly, that's because it's no longer falling so much along racial lines. Mm -hmm. This is just like the crack versus powder cocaine thing that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Yeah, they don't notice. Um, Legislators don't notice until it starts affecting them, and nine times out of ten, that means rich white, because we still have a government that's largely rich and white. And that's what's so unique about this, is that I don't know a person who hasn't been in some way affected by the opioid epidemic, even if it's sort of shows the age range too yeah distantly it's 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 people whose dad 
got a surgery and then after that he yes, had it is a real thing it I absolutely mean, is yeah like, you can get addicted it's great effective pain treatment and it's really really hard you have to start ratcheting up how much you administer yourself pretty early in the process and and the degrees of habit are different but one thing that the trump administration has done is try to target dealers versus users and draw a distinction there and have a lighter hand theoretically on users and Which a is heavier good. hand on yeah so that part's great and it's it's definitely a step in the right direction i and think I'd that trump also said we should administer the death penalty for dealers though which right so then that's the flip back, side folks and you think about who becomes a dealer in these situations and often it's not these uninvested third parties it's other people who have to fund their own habit or have access to these things and so and generally their first customers themselves. are friends and family right. it's not and they're doing it with them it's not pretending they're heartless and unsalvageable and deserve the death penalty is not the way we fix this crisis or even that it's intentional in the kind of way that it's it's worthwhile to target because it it's not really even a line let alone a black and white one and this article that i sent you minutes before we got here is really really tricky and heart-wrenching highlights the issue here and it's it came out on the new york times about a year ago it's called they shared drugs somebody died does that make them killers Mm -hmm. and it's essentially people who sometimes overdose themselves with a friend with a family member the other person died from the same batch at the same time but the one who survived happened to be the one that bought that day yeah and they shoulder the liability because they survived and again we like to place blame it's a human reaction to these things but when you're saying dealers versus users you're pulling from the same pot it's not but it's definitely a step above punishing users because we've seen how that works so often during the yeah the war on drugs i think it's it's a concept that is starting in the right direction but it is not gonna but it's still flawed and i think that honestly i think that lawsuits against the pharmaceutical companies is the best way that yeah. you can hold people who are making money off of this crisis accountable the sackler family has been making money off of the oh, yeah. opioid crisis for over 20 years and i'm sure they'll be comfortable for 20 more for the most part and a lot it's of them. just been in the last year i think that uh during one of the i think it may have been npr fresh air it may have been the uh, daily podcast but they were talking about the protest at the guggenheim where uh people had they took uh fake prescription slips oh god and i think that it said like drop the sack the sacklers or something on it and they it was hunt like a hundred people, and they threw it from the Guggenheim. Oh, that's upper aesthetically floors. pleasing. I like that. I know, really Mental good, really good there. shot for your indie doc if you're in college at NYU. I think that's actually very similar to a shot that was in the Modern Hamlet with Julia Stiles and Ethan Hawke that came out in like '99. I think they modern grow. what? There's a <laughs> there's a Modern Hamlet where it's hip little Julia Stiles being all hot and everything I wanted to be as Ophelia going crazy on that spirally ramp of the Guggenheim and she's throwing Polaroids over the edge and Ethan Hawke is fretful because he loves her and accidentally killed her dad. Oops. The only new Hamlet I acknowledge is the VeggieTales version, Mackenzie. Where I think it was an omelet. I'm not sure. Brooke and I are going to part ways at this juncture. Um, We appreciate it. Listen, if you don't, if you weren't raised evangelical, you don't know, okay? You don't understand Please respect our privacy at this time. (laughs) We're going through a divorce. And don't send me any vegetable pics. 
ever, really. <laughs> just send, send Mackenzie a bunch of cucumber with googly eyes photos. No dick pics. Since I hate crying. Okay, so, so oh, this is a little tip. This is a little tidbit you might like. Mm-hmm. Guess who headed the consulting firm that Purdue Pharma worked with during you know, bro, the 2004 investigation? There are so many ripe little gems out there right now that I... I'll give you a hint. Help. Yeah, okay. He was married to his cousin. Oh, Giuliani! Rudy. Rudolph Giuliani, folks. One of the few remaining mainstays in this generation who got away with that. So he worked with... His consulting firm worked... He did not work directly with Purdue. His consulting firm worked with Purdue Pharma. Strange bedfellows, let me say, in more ways than one. And that wasn't the only time that they were investigated or taken to court. In 2007, Purdue and three current and former executives pleaded guilty in federal court to criminal charges that they misled regulators, FDA, mm-hmm. doctors and patients about the drug's risk of addiction I mean, and if you're lying to every regulatory system or check that would be on you, which would be both FDA looking back and then doctors looking forward as, as prescribers, yeah, you I kind mean, of to be fair, all the strings there. I have a, if the FDA is has a just a, a terrible history, but if they are the ones that are proving it, they should have checked their claims. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't know nearly enough to comment either on the medical side or, frankly, the regulatory side for something like that. Mm. But I can't help but feel things like underfunding science and healthcare and research and also the nature of the industry must tie your hands to some extent because there's only so much research you can do. Like, for example, I hope my husband's okay with me saying this, but... Ooh, we got husband T mm. coming. He pokes rat brains. Oh, I think that's fine. We talk about that all the time casually. I'm so sorry. They're mice. Ethan, I apologize. Wow, he clarified that. He gets really bent out of shape because, quote, rats are cool. Mice are cool. I like to think so. You know what, America, he went vegetarian when he started this job and his PhD program to offset his impact, and he does not kill indiscriminately. But as somebody who had cancer, he feels... He doesn't kill... He can just Mice indiscriminately he does kill people indiscriminately he does do that but you know they have it coming for the most part (laughs) the fact that even that is somewhat controversial and that's kind of the way that you test a lot of these things i mean you have to make sure that things don't kill people that's why we're where we are with the opioid crisis so where and how you test these things and the speed with which you do then on the flip side if you're the person whose family member is dying because they don't have access to a cancer treatment that has not yet been approved but then i know my mom has talked about these quote-unquote right to try laws that allow people to try medications before they're fda approved have just been huge traps by which pharmaceutical companies get people and make huge amounts of money with some disclaimer of liability because they're not saying it does anything and so it just seems like a morass of these interlocking rules that are unfriendly to both patients and physicians, and somehow pharmaceutical companies always end up coming out on top regardless of how they exploit and how much money they make off of it. So I don't know. The more I think about it, the more I feel like a socialist. And, you know, lock me up, Mr. McCarthy. I have you know decency, so funny sir. About, have, you, have you know decency, sir? What I do think is funny about universal health care and the concept of it is that it kind of crosses party lines a bit. I think that... It could. I think there's a potential there. 
I do too. I think that a lot of people who are without healthcare or have any experience with the healthcare system in America and understand what it looks like when you don't have health insurance and you have to go to the emergency room. And actually, Vox did an incredibly good series on this, and I will find it and reference it Is in the next the episode. Is this one that talks about the public option? Because my friend Ginny sent me a link about how costs end up distributing based on the model in one of the New York public health care bills. It and I it actually it does kind of offset. The series was that they reached out to readers and gathered the most incredible not inc- oh. even incredible because they're not unique, but they gathered people's emergency room bills mm. and broke down what the costs were. And it was something, it was crazy stuff. Like um, this couple took their daughter in because she managed, she was a, like a two year old, mm-hmm. and she managed to tie her own hair around <laughs> her toe. So, oh, a hair hard. tourniquet. We had a med mal case about a hair tourniquet. It cut through her skin and she was spurting blood they're from bad. her toe. So they took her to the emergency room. She, they, the doctors plucked the hair out. <sighs> Put some ointment on and a Band-Aid, and she got a $900 bill for ointment and a Band-Aid. And that's just, like, one of the most ridiculous ones I can think of. But there are just crazy you, – you go you walk into an emergency room, and it's $1,000. And I mean, that's, you get transported. I was in a car accident, and just the ride to the hospital in which I chatted consciously with EMTs as they cut through my tights so they could put a little, like, heart monitor on my ankle, that – was something like $5,000, and it was a couple blocks. I want to put this on the record. If anything ever happens to me, you better call me an Uber, put me in the back oh of that Uber. Oh, my God. I am not doing that. And roll me to a hospital. Put That's this 20 on the record. If I am ever with Brooke in that situation... I am not going to do what she says. Divorced. Do with that. Well, you know, I guess that's why we couldn't make it work. <laughs> I just care too much about you, just, Brooke. I mean, okay. If I, if, if I need, like... Um, what are the things? The the paddles? If I need the paddles immediately, you can put me in the defibrillator. But if I'm like, if well, I like don't break know, a limb, though. just put me, if, you know what, just put me put in Put you in a casket. I'm going to put you in a casket and just cut Wheel to the chase. Me. Yeah. Wheel me to the yeah. hospital in a casket. A couple of things. <laughs> There's actually a bevy of things. Kind of, it is a bevy. It connects to, somewhat to our conversation about guns from the last couple of weeks in thinking about how we hold people responsible and who we hold responsible, how people who seem to always be on the wrong side of the equation keep getting away with stuff. So just thinking of, so like Martin Shkreli. Oh my God. Fucking Martin Shkreli. So the I, golem of the internet. I actually worked at the Eastern District of New York courthouse during his trial. And one of the emptiest moments of my life was when I made eye contact with Martin Shkreli and his he was in the did the curb the enthusiasm theme to start playing in your head as soon as you locked eyes have you ever heard uh what is it losing my religion in (laughs) major chords in any event it would be like if if curb your enthusiasm was in minor chords because it was just really cold and empty and you know when you make eye contact with somebody whether it's awkward or enthusiastic there's some sort of reaction but it was just he was wearing these big huge pants and you can't help but wonder somebody with that much money did really nobody told you to wear a matching fitting suit no someone probably did tell him and he was like fuck you man man. i'm martin screlly i do do what what i want want. (laughs) um that was a weirdly synced because it's him he had one of those like big gulp cups from 
like one of those Coca-Cola brand big gulp size cups filled with the blood of children who needed medication and couldn't afford it. And I was there, walking through the jury selection room area and he just kind of vacantly looked at me and then lurched off towards the stairs. I think he is the most unlikable man in America. Can we say that? Yeah. I think that's another universal hatred. Because he spiked, what was the exact drug that he spiked? It was Daraprim. It was, it was an HIV treatment drug and he, it was in the thousands of percentage hikes on on how much he was charging for what for many people is life-saving treatment even if it's preventing HIV from turning into AIDS or HIV from turning into something life-threatening. You think of the risks of privatizing healthcare and giving control over life-saving innovations to patent holders and holding them hostage under these high costs until 20 years go by because typically that's the patent window but what within that window and there's actually that bill that i had sent you earlier the dole mm-hmm. whatever bob dole bob dole bob dole. Ba- bob dole bay dole act actually gives the government an option to do what they call march in and reclaim these patents but they haven't really exercised it to any great end and it was tried for one aids drug but then some other government entity was like, no, it's, there's no real need. And that one was hiked up 400%. And they're like, well, it didn't really show that there was a difference in people buying the private version. Well, so. what we have to understand as well is the fact that uh, Big Pharma has its giant greasy tentacles in all everything. over all po- our politicians. The, the, we got to talk money in politics lobby- soon. I know, we will. Absolutely. Yeah, it's getting nasty. The lobby for Big Pharma is so insidious. We all know it's there. Because but the money's so the big. Effect, I mean, you look at absolutely, this. I mean, to talk about the – and I actually, I, I said it was a 2004 decision. It was actually the 2007 decision, the later – uh, the later lawsuit that they paid six, the six hundred thousand. No, sorry, I'm sorry, six hundred million dollar. Mm-hmm. Also, fine way for, too early. Not only to the government, but also it was fines and restitutions to the government and private private individuals as well. Again, a drop in the bucket for this pharmaceutical company right. because they make so much money and they make money by exploiting people who need health care. That, that is what how big pharma makes right. money. So they and have all almost- this money to spend. They spend it convincing politicians not to pass laws that will regulate them and yet in a in a circumstance where it is a business you almost can't blame them because what else are they you know what you do in a a capitalist structure when you have a business is you try to do well you try to make the most money and but i would argue this is and there's no morality to it inherently no, absolutely, and I and I think that and this is so one of the tricky. times we knock against that crony capitalist mm-hmm. thing that we live in a crony capitalist structure at yeah. this point. This is late capitalism, and I think that <laughs> any time that the that co- big companies, big industries like big pharma can influence politicians, that is crony capitalism. Right. That's not pure capitalism. And you know, I, and I I think that's a line that I would draw with less I don't know less firm a font or something, but I do agree that that. When those industries are inherently linked to somebody's livelihood or very existence, that's it should never be something that's linked and and be put in the hands of somebody who doesn't somebody collectively yeah. who doesn't have a responsibility to the greater good because neither insurance companies nor pharmaceutical companies take any sort of Hippocratic oath. There's no 
licensing board to do that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and yet they're the intermediaries between people and their healthcare. And Absolutely. it's not like they have any expertise or any indebtedness to the greater good. They're just kind of there for money-making purposes. And I think that's what happens when you make something like healthcare when you when you put a barrier of yeah profit and no floor because that's where I I kind of strike my personal balance between socialism and capitalism in a healthcare sense and why I wish there was more of a willingness between the two parties to talk about both of those concepts in less of a an all or nothing kind of way because I think that there should be a floor of comfort and sustainability you know, basic housing, basic education, basic health care, that nobody, regardless of how little or how much work you do, nobody should drop below those basic human rights entitlements. Now, if you want to make more money above that point and pursue higher education or get a bigger shelter, you know, buy a, mm-hmm. a bigger house, that's fine. That can be within a capitalist realm. And I don't know enough about economy to plot that structure, but it feels to me like they're it's feasible to have an everybody has clean water, nobody dies because they can't afford to live. It almost sounds like you're on the Yang Gang right now. Oh my god. The Andrew Yang. And nobody universal gets to basic income. And there's no circumcision. Mm-mm. A future with universal basic income and no circumcision. And Actually, no I've heard the biggest uh, the international biggest policy. Criticism, <laughs> yeah, no foreign policy at all. The biggest criticism I've heard of Andrew Yang from the left is that I think his universal basic income is like a thousand a month mm-hmm. per adult, yeah. which for most households won't be enough. Well, yeah, but that's but it's still it's still again, more than a lot of what being people are the, getting. Any of the good kind of thing. No, absolutely, and I think that I, I think, think that if you, yeah, I mean, if you're getting so. a universal basic income to a certain extent, cause I, again, like we shouldn't be paying Jeff Bezos a universal basic income, so yeah. up to a certain income bracket. Yeah, and then I guess where do you cut that off? I, I was just thinking, I actually I don't want to say this on the record. Uh, never mind. How do you feel about Veggie Tales? I'm kidding. <laughs> I am anti Veggie Tales, mostly those phallic ones. Um, the oh, phallic the, ones are the most fun. That's true. They're probably the most pious too, just to offset. No, Larry the Cucumber was by far the most. Did fun. he love to party? Um, he loved his manatee named Barbara. Oh fuck yeah! He had a song for her, and he danced with her with a rose. Mm. So you're I'm glad. You they know were what? Straight. I feel like you're really prejudging. You know what? I'm just really glad they were straight. That's all I have to say. Oh, you think they were straight? They were two best friends who lived together. They're basically the Burton Ernie of evangelical cartoons. Oh, they're Barbara was a man. No, Barbara was a girl, but Bert, but Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber were best friends who lived together. Mm. Come on now. That's an aesthetically pleasing couple. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, guys. Um, oh, j- one thing that I do want to pair with the conversation about liability for pharmaceutical companies is the developing body of case law on gun manufacturers being held liable, which um, since Sandy Hook has been, people have thought it was off the table because of this federal act that kind of allowed gun manufacturers to get off the hook in cases where basically any other producer, even if it's a car producer, things like that, would be liable because their product caused death. Right. So um, how, does that, how does that extend to something like a pharmaceutical company? Yeah, and it actually uh, has swung back in the gun context in the other direction. There is a case within the last year, I think, that a judge actually ruled in favor of Sandy Hook families saying that, yes, this did cause death and we're holding the manufacturer responsible. 
Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how both of these develop, these lines of cases develop on a, a greater national scale, kind of being emboldened by these decisions in their favor and see if the things like public nuisance as a justification and general harm to the public are enough to sustain both lines of cases. I, I feel like, yeah, they're certainly yeah. public nuisances on both fronts and they're causing a lot of damage, so... And again, and this kind of gets us to the how do we get this crisis under control? Uh, The Trump administration has awarded almost $2 billion in grant funding to state and local governments to help prevention and treatment Mm -hmm. uh, in the opioid epidemic. And Purdue is set to tank. They're going to apply for bankruptcy probably. But then how does that affect – people who take the other drugs that they make it's like everything's interconnected when it is a business entity that's going down no absolutely it's so like i don't know i don't know what happens then so it's like do you see it only in the scope of the opioid epidemic or do you see it in the larger scope which seems to have definitely grown past purdue purdue may have purdue may have stoked it purdue may have even been everybody had their hands in the the shit pile i think no, absolutely. And so it's what what do we do from now? Um uh, I want to mention this documentary I watched um it's called Heroin H E R I O N and then E in parentheses on Netflix. It's about Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> it's about it follows several women who live in Appalachia, including the town's fire chief Jan Rader and the judge of the town's court or drug court program. And Jan Rader uses naloxone which is a drug that combats it it it, it fights the effects of is it like a narcan i think narcan's the brand one is naloxone is the actual drug the generic yeah it blocks or reverses the effects of opioid Mm -hmm. medication so you actually on the the new york subways you can see ads for this yeah Um, they're encouraging citizens who may know people who are using opioids or may use opioids themselves Mm -hmm to carry it with them to to fight this and then also a lot of um emergency responders and definitely in new york city but elsewhere yeah, as well I think are, they're, they're using naloxone as well which would which fights the effects of opioid and could save a lot of lives but is that is right. that enough to i don't know if it's enough i think it's a great start um you can get it if i'm not mistaken over the counter in new york city now and you there are free training programs here at, which is great I don't know that New York City, it's a good training ground for a lot of these social progress types of laws. I don't know if this is where it's needed the most because emergency response is always so close in a tightly packed city. Absolutely. This circles back to what can we do? In this country, the supervised injection facilities are still illegal in the United States, and those are places where people can have access to naloxone yeah, and Narcan, those sorts of things somebody's watching them they have clean needles uh they have like dosage control essentially nobody has hands in the administration of it so there is no liability issue you're not actually handing drugs over you're right, handing clean but it's needles a safety, and naloxone and other prevention yeah methods a like safe that. environment where somebody can go and you know people who are on drugs are going to do them and without methods to take themselves off and, and frankly even with backsliding like it Nothing's going to be perfect. You have to acknowledge harm prevention sorts of techniques. But that is illegal in this country. And in other countries, nobody has died in a facility like that. So it does show you the need we know certainly exists. But it's almost, to me, not to to parallel 
drug use to having sex, but if you think of the inevitability factor, it, it strikes me as the parents who wouldn't let their daughters go on birth control because they thought it would encourage having sex. Mm-hmm. No, that's gonna happen. Yeah. And p- drug addicts backsliding or not recovering immediately or fully, that's gonna happen. So, do we want them to do it safely, or do we want to somehow punish them in a weird moral sense because we're afraid of them doing it in a safer way? No, absolutely. And I think that we've gone to the point in this epidemic where everyone knows about it, everyone's been mm-hmm. affected by it. I think that it's as much a cultural thing, it's a, it's an economic issue. I don't think it can just be solved with policy. I think it has to be solved yeah, at a, com- it's a community level, level as well. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very happy the Trump administration has, has been funding it at least. I think I disagree with many of their approaches on yeah, this I, issue in I general. But they probably were nudged because a lot of their base is affected, and I think they well, were nudged in the right direction it's a po- a bit. Again, like it's a populist... Yeah. It's a populist administration. I think that they are at least listening to the concerns of a lot of their base. And this does affect so many... This affects... Again, I don't know really anyone who hasn't been at least remotely affected by the the opioid epidemic in some way. Everyone knows somebody who's lost someone. Or everyone knows... Has lost one personally. You think of the issues that this touches, like criminal justice reform. When you think of criminal versus mental health being the solution, it thus touches mental health care and access to it. Healthcare funding, these are all really fundamental social issues that connect to it, so hopefully it'll breed some more consensus because that's where the solutions are. The last thing that I would mention as a feasible and accessible solution, probably not super partisan, but not yet capitalized enough, is things like test strips that mm-hmm. um, apparently, according to uh, Ben Westhoff, who wrote another book called Fentanyl Inc., Uh, He said that the rave scene has actually innovated a lot of these things. We were talking before about MDMA being one of the quote-unquote holdouts that was the last type of drug because it's such a party drug. It's a a different kind of thing. It's it's not as habit-forming in the same way. Um, It's existed in a different sphere for a while. But it now, too, is being cut with fentanyl. And so a lot of these rave communities have taken to using test strips to figure out if fentanyl is in the drug before taking it. And research shows that not only MDMA users and party drug kind of users, but uh, opioid users will use them too. And if they find that it tests positive for fentanyl, they're less likely to do it quickly. They're less likely to do as much. And so access to those things, again, yes, it's acknowledging that this is out there and it's acknowledging people are going to do it, but it helps. But the blind approach to it where we're acting Somehow. like, pretending that it doesn't happen, that people don't use it, that it doesn't exist, has not worked, clearly. I mean, again, right. 130 people. <laughs> this was a, I think it was a National Institute on Drug Abuse. Mm-hmm. That I got that 130. So 130 people are dying per day. The last thing I would say is tell prescribers how to wean people off of drugs, have better standards, and also pair that with allowing them to prescribe opioids when it's necessary, research other drugs, just be chill with everybody. Be nice. Don't make it so crime and punishment. This is not Russia, even though we're trying to be. All right, guys. So with that, we love you, and Carolina loves you, too. Yeah. Carolina's here. Bye. That's her Instagram. <laughs> <laughs>